0: all right would you again stand to your feet with me as we open our bibles and read from god's authoritative and inerrant holy word we're going to read acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 15 this morning and if you're reading out of a pew bible you can find this on page 639 again we're going to read acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 15 now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank You that Your Word is powerful. Lord, it does not lay idle. God, it moves people uh, to response, whether it's a response in faith or, Lord, a response in um, antagonizing those who bring the gospel. Lord, may your word go forth from this church and this pulpit. Lord, as we prepare for our World Outreach Celebration, God, stir us to action. Lord, draw us closer to you. God, may we become more and more like your son. Lord, do great things. Uh, Lord, this year, Lord, may you move amongst your people and throughout the world. In Christ's name, amen.
1: making plans to uh, go beyond borders with us during our World Outreach Celebration. It will be here, before you know it, on October the 25th through the 29th, and I hope you're, you've marked your calendars and are making plans for yourself to come, if you're part of a family, to bring your family. If you have kids, bring your kids and teens, and uh, especially if you have kids, we have our kids celebration that will be going on each night of the week, and uh, it's a wonderful time for them to participate and going beyond borders as well, being impacted by our missionary guests that we have planned for that week. It starts Wednesday night, and then goes Thursday night with our seminar, and then Friday night, and then we have Saturday morning breakfast uh, for the men, be at Golden Corral. uh, They're at Tiffany Springs Market Area, and then that, for lunch, for you women, it'll be right here at Life Bridge down in our multi-purpose room. In fact, you can get your tickets today, is that correct? Yes, it's $7, right? So buy your tickets, ladies. Get those today. If you didn't come prepared today, uh, you can buy them next Sunday. They'll be on sale uh, after the service each Sunday and uh, up through World Outreach Celebration. But we really want to encourage you, ladies, to get your tickets. So we know how, how many to plan for, and you'll have a catered lunch here uh, at the church. And then, of course, that Sunday uh, morning uh, is our celebration with our World Outreach, and we're climaxing it with our uh, commitment cards which will be in the bulletin starting next Sunday and we want you to take that commitment card beginning next Sunday just begin praying and asking God Lord what do you want me to give how do you want me to participate financially in giving to Faith Promise Mission so that we can go beyond borders as a church through our missionary partnerships and of course that's for uh, the physical year of 2018 and so be thinking about that and that Sunday morning on October the 29th uh, we will turn in our commitment cards that's what we're asking you as a church family to be prepared to do and then of course that Sunday night is our Celebrate Unplugged but this doesn't happen by chance it happens with a uh, leading up, planning for it and with a church-wide effort and so let me encourage you to sign up to help serve at the various events, functions that we have going on uh, we need nursery help. We need kids help. Desserts to uh, to bring for our dessert fellowships, and there, so there's a place at the info tables uh, for you can sign up and be a part of that. And so please take note. Well, a most oh man, an incredible, a most remarkable statement is made about Paul and Silas right here in the text that Kirk read for us, Acts 17. The statement is they are accused of turning the world upside down for Jesus Christ. In his commentary, William Barclay states, that is one of the greatest compliments which has ever been paid to Christianity. When Christianity really goes into action, it must cause a revolution both in the life of the individual and in the life of society. Charles Spurgeon said the same thing. They said the apostles turned the world upside down. They meant by that that they were disturbers of the peace. But they said a great true thing. For Christ's gospel does turn the world upside down. And as Christ followers, listen, God has called us. He's called our church and he's called us as individual Christ followers to bridge the gap with the life-changing, radical-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to give ourselves over to changing the world for Christ's sake. In other words, to turning the world upside down. British preacher G. Campbell Morgan once said, Christianity, which fails to make a disturbance, is dead. Pastor and evangelist Greg Laurie writes, what concerns me is that we are not making a disturbance anymore. We are so worried about fitting in. We are so worried about relating we are so worried about being cool that we have forgotten what it is to make a stand for what is true. My fear is that instead of the church turning the world upside down, the world is turning the church upside down. C.T. C. Studd was a wealthy Englishman who, upon coming to faith in Jesus Christ, get this, sold everything he had so that he could take the gospel to all peoples. Before becoming a missionary, C.T. Studd was the most outstanding cricket player in England by the end of the 19th century. By 1882, he was considered one of the best cricket players in the world. He was probably the best known athlete in his day in England. However, in 1884, after his brother George became seriously ill, C.T. was confronted by the question. What is all the fame and flattery worth when a man must face reality? As a result of that experience, CT gave his life fully to God, later stating, my heart was no longer in the game. I wanted to win souls for the Lord. I knew that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but it is worthwhile living for the world to come. As a result of his brother's illness and the effect it had upon him, C.T. decided to serve the Lord through a missionary work in China against the wishes and persuasions of his family. Along with six other students from Cambridge University, in fact, together they became known as the Cambridge Seven, C.T. served as a pioneer missionary under Hudson Taylor with China Inland Mission. Of his missionary work, he boldly proclaimed, in his own words, Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He also said, real Christians revel in desperate ventures for Christ, expecting from God great things and attempting the same with exhilaration. After 10 years in China, C.T. and his family began ministry in India, where the Lord used them greatly as people were converted to Jesus every single week. After nearly a decade in India, Charles heard about the urgent need for missionaries in the wild, unexplored interior of Africa. He was compelled to go where no Christian had ever been before. And so he went into the fiercest place on earth in order to take the gospel to those who needed to hear it most. Alfred Buxton, CT's friend and colleague, during his ministry in Africa, summarized CT's life with these words. CT's life stands as some rugged Gibraltar a sign to all succeeding generations that it is worthwhile to lose all this world can offer and stake everything on the world to come. His life will be an eternal rebuke to easygoing Christianity. He has demonstrated what it means to follow Christ without counting the cost and without looking back. Like Paul and Silas before him, C.T. Studd, listen, we could say he turned the world upside down for the cause of Christ. And so the question before us this morning, and it, it, it just it jumps out of the pages of Scripture, and it hits us in the face, and that is this question. Can Christ followers still make that kind of difference in the world today for the cause of Christ? Can we still make that kind of difference today? Or is that a thing in the past? Is that something only for Paul and Silas? Is that something only for people like C.T. Studd? Or is this possible for us here in the 21st century, where you live, where you work, where you go to school? And the answer that we're going to see from our text this morning is absolutely yes. But that brings us to the question, then how? How can we turn the world upside down? And that is by unabashedly declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the first 15 verses here of Acts 15, we see the primary way in which Paul and Silas went about upending the world. They proclaimed Jesus Christ as king. And the the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ impacted the world in such a big way because if Jesus is king, and he is, then everything changes. So let me just kind of unfold up front what we're going to see this morning here in Acts 17 and that is this when the word is proclaimed then the world is changed that's the big idea that we see with Paul and Silas here when the word of God is proclaimed then the world of people is changed. And I pray you will do more than just see this truth in the Scriptures. I pray you will embrace this truth with your life. I pray this truth will grip your heart. It will convict you. It will challenge you. I pray this truth will then compel you to give your life over to bridging the gap with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when the Word of God is proclaimed then the world of people is changed. The world is turned upside down. So let's look at it. Number one, when the word of God is proclaimed, in the first half of Acts 17, we find the word of God spreading into two more cities here in Macedonia. The first city is Thessalonica, the second city is Berea. And into both of these cities, Paul came proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Word of God. And as a result, both those cities were turned upside down. One thing the gospel never does is nothing. It is never neutral. It is never passive. When those who believe it, proclaim it, under the power of the Holy Spirit, it always creates something. For some, it creates saving faith. For others, it creates serious problems. Yet it never just sits there impotent or ignored. And so if you want to turn your world upside down for Christ, the lever is the Word of God. When the Word of God is faithfully proclaimed, it always impacts the world in which you live. This was Paul's conviction in his heart and in his mind, he knew he is carrying a message that would transform people. It would change the future of the cities in which he is proclaiming it. This is our conviction as a church here at Life Bridge. Listen, the conviction is this the church's power to change the world is not political. It's not economical, it's not military, it is spiritual. It's a spiritual power that we have. It's a power that is exercised by the gospel message we proclaim in God's word. And embracing this conviction is vital for turning the world upside down. Listen, the world is in desperate need of people with gospel conviction. Desperate need. Now, what is that? What does that mean? What does that look like? Gospel conviction. Well, in the context here of Acts 17, let me define it for you this way. Conviction is the human response to God's sovereign call to bridge the gap to all peoples with the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of difficulty. So it's the human response, it's our response To God's sovereign call to all of us as Christ followers to take the gospel to the lost world. That's that's conviction. Conviction is something we believe within our heart and then it propels us to act and to move out on it. To respond to it. And Paul and Silas were first led by the Spirit of God to go to Philippi where three different people were radically changed by the gospel of Christ. We saw this last Sunday. But having turned that city, Philippi, upside down, they have now been urged to leave the city of Philippi by the city officials. They're like, man, you get out of here. Move on. And so Luke tells us now in the very first verse of Acts 17, Now when they had passed through Amphib- Am- Amphibolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So what's happening is Paul and Silas made the journey from Philippi to Thessalonica. And they made this journey on a very famous Roman road that is still in use today. It's called the Ignatian Way. And it may sound as though this journey was kind of like a pleasant afternoon walk or stroll, but this was no walk in the park. This was a hundred-mile journey through that probably took at least three days for them to walk. And don't forget what happened to Paul and Silas in Philippi. And they were tortured They they are still nursing recent wounds from when they were severely beaten in Philippi, and yet here they are walking a hundred miles to Thessalonica in response to God's call to bridge the gap to all peoples with the gospel. Now, as you're beginning to see, this is the repeated cycle in Paul's missionary journeys. We saw this in his first journey. We're seeing it now in this second journey where he faithfully answers God's call to proclaim the gospel to all peoples, and his proclamation of the gospel almost always leads to persecution. Paul's conviction reminds me of what the missionary David Livingston once said when he was asked where he was prepared to go. And Livingston's answer was this, I'm prepared to go anywhere so long as it's forward. And so the idea of turning back in the face of difficulty never occurred to the Apostle Paul. There's no way he's bailing out on this mission. It is forward. God, wherever you lead, that's where I'm going. And so he and Silas made a beeline for the city of Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica was a thriving city cosmopolitan city. It was the capital of Macedonia. It boasted a population of some 200,000. And so once in Thessalonica, Paul, as he always does, it was his custom to do so, he found a Jewish synagogue where he engages the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, and he does this for three consecutive Sabbaths, we're told. Now, here's what I want you to take notice of, is what Paul does in the synagogue for these 3 sabbaths his place of contact with the Jews and the god-fearing Gentiles look what he Luke writes in verses 2 through 3 then Paul as his custom was went into them and for 3 sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, that word preach, it's not necessarily means all the time what I'm doing right here to a large audience or any kind of audience. Rather, it's simply the idea to herald or to proclaim. A more modern term is it's, it's share, but we're proclaiming. And so Paul is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to these people. And notice this, he's doing it from what? He's doing it from the scriptures. And for Paul, that would have been the Old Testament. Paul reasons with them, it says. And that idea, it simply means he's discussing with them Jesus Christ. He's dialoguing with them about Jesus Christ. He's explaining to them the gospel, and he's helping them to understand why the Messiah had to suffer and die on the cross and rise again from the dead. And Paul is proving all of this from the Old Testament scriptures, which they would have been somewhat familiar with. Now, Here's what i want you to try to do try to feel the intensity in this try to feel what paul's doing here because paul is engaged in a matter of life and death with these people this is no time for complacency this is no time for indifference paul knows that the eternal destiny of people is at stake and the reason that what's compelling him is his conviction his gospel conviction and in particular two convictions that i want us to take notice of in fact i would suggest that if we're going to turn our world upside down we need to embrace these two convictions as christ followers notice the first one what we proclaim from the scriptures is divine and essential it's divine and essential Understand, the basis for all that Paul proclaimed about Jesus was the authority of God's Word, the authority of the Scriptures. The Word of God was his point of reference. It was his authority. It was the foundation of what he had to say. Why? Because what Scripture says, God says. What we proclaim from the Bible is divine. It's it's God's word, and it's supreme. And so we need to embrace, I would say we must embrace the conviction that the basis of our message, our gospel message in particular, is the authority of God's word. Listen, we don't say to the world necessarily, we or I have a message for you. No, we say to the lost world, God has a message for you, and it's here in the scriptures. Our message, in other words, is not made up. We don't pull it out of thin air. It's not a concoction of our imagination, nor is it something conceived in the disciples' or the apostles' imagination. No. The gospel message is God's story, get this, from before the world was even created. The gospel message is the story of redemption. It is the thread... Runs from Genesis all the way through Revelation. God's word is our basis. It is our authority for which we proclaim Jesus Christ. And while most people, yes, it is true today. While most people today know little, in fact, maybe even nothing about God's word. In fact, it's the kind of people which we will see next week in the city of Athens that Paul encountered. We have to point people to the scriptures as the source of our message. And this gospel message that runs through the Bible is essential for people to hear. And so part of this conviction here is twofold. The conviction about the scriptures, it's our authority. But it's also, the scriptures contain a message that is essential for people to hear. You say, why is that? Because ever since the fall of the human race into sin, people have been in rebellion against God. We are born into sin. And we continue to sin unless we are upset by the gospel that confronts our sin. Sin has made the world stand on its head. And only Jesus can turn it upside down, which really, in essence, makes it right side up again. And this is the greatest story in all the world. This is the story of God's Word. And so, what we're doing here, the conviction is, I need to tell people something. And that something is Jesus Christ, the Redeemer who died on behalf of sinners, in order to reconcile them back to God. That is the story the scriptures contain. That is the essential story that people need to hear. Is that our conviction? Does that motivate us? Is that our passion? And when we do, here's the second conviction we must embrace. What we proclaim about the Savior then is persuasive and divisive. The gospel is persuasive. Look what Luke says in verse 4. This is after Paul has now reasoned with them from the scriptures about Jesus Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection. Look what happens. And some of them were what? Persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few, that's just Luke's way of saying, a great many, a big crowd, in other words, of the leading women, they all joined Paul and Silas. That word persuaded, it comes from a word that means to believe and then to obey. And it's not that Paul pressured people to believe the gospel, but rather, get this, it's what we saw last Sunday, God opened their hearts to believe to see the truth of Jesus Christ, to see the reality of their sinfulness, and in response to that, believe what Paul proclaimed about Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss this. Do you realize, and this is glorious here, do you realize we proclaim the same gospel Paul proclaimed? Now, let that sink in for a moment. And I love the way Charles Spurgeon's grandfather put it when commenting on his grandson's gift to speak in front of large crowds of people. His grandfather said, Oh, he may preach a better gospel. He may preach a better gospel than I do, but he does not preach. He may preach the gospel better than I do, but he does not preach a better gospel. Whoa. Yes, Paul was a quote, if we could say it this way, a better gospel preacher than perhaps any of us. But he didn't preach a better gospel. And that's something worth remembering. Listen, we don't need a better gospel. We don't need a different gospel. We have an all-sufficient gospel. Remember what we learned last Sunday in Acts 16. The gospel is what? It is the power of God to save everyone who believes, regardless of their gender, their race, or their status. As one author writes, ensuring our faith, we must give others room to move and to think about it. The gospel dialogue and open and placed before others will always stand on its own. In other words, we don't need to prop up the gospel The gospel is sufficient. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone. And so we should be encouraged by this, that the gospel is persuasive. And so trust in the power of the gospel and proclaim it with conviction. And when we do, we must also then be aware that the gospel is divisive. When the gospel is clearly proclaimed, It draws a line in the sand. People cannot be neutral. Luke tells us at the beginning of verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious. In other words, instead of being persuaded by the truth of Jesus Christ, they were enraged by it. And these unbelieving Jews were envious that some Jews and a great multitude of Gentiles believed in Jesus Christ. And so here, as everywhere Paul went proclaiming the gospel, it stirred up trouble. In fact, these jealous Jews were so enraged in their opposition that they followed Paul 50 miles to Berea to stir up that city against him but not before stirring up the city of Thessalonica against him first, as we'll see here in a moment. Now what's interesting, later on, Paul is looking back on his ministry in this city of Thessalonica, and he writes to these believers that were left behind, that were planted there. These same believers. In fact, it's the church at Thessalonica, and we have two letters in our Bibles written to them. And looking back, he says, he writes about his trials, he writes about his boldness to proclaim the word of God to them. Listen to his own testimony in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1-2. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. We were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. I love that. In our modern age of so called tolerance and increasing hostility toward Christianity, we need to ask God to give us this kind of gospel conviction. That even in the face of difficulty, opposition, hostility, our conviction would be emboldened to proclaim it. Because we have a conviction about it. That that message is essential. It's the hope of the world. It is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. And so what we're seeing is that when the word of God is proclaimed, Number two, then the world of people is changed. Now, the reality is, though, some people still believe the world is just fine the way it is. How many of you are one of them? Sure you are, all of us. There are things in our life where we don't want any change, right? Sure. The comedian Stephen Colbert, in a parody of the traditional commencement speech, told Princeton graduates, You can change the world. Please don't do that, okay? Some of us like the way things are going now. And that was true in Paul's day. He is about to discover once again that proclaiming Jesus can prove costly when it changes the world. And so, when we proclaim the gospel, we can expect two things. There are always two results. We can expect converts, and we can expect conflict. Notice the first one. Some open minded Jews receive the gospel and believe the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, we just saw that some Jews in Thessalonica were persuaded by the gospel. And look what happens when Paul and Silas proclaim the gospel now here in Berea in verses 10 through 12. It says, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, again, Paul does the same thing. Where does he go? He goes to the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also, not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. And so Paul does the same thing in Berea as he did in Thessalonica. Which again is amazing because what happened in Thessalonica as we're going to see is opposition, persecution, hostility. But it doesn't doesn't affect him in the sense of quitting on the mission. He just plugs right along. He starts off in the synagogue proclaiming Jesus and the Messiah and Luke wants us to see something here. Luke is making a sharp contrast between the Jews in Thessalonica and these Jews in Berea. He says that these Jews in Berea, he says, were more what? Fair-minded. Some of your Bibles may say more noble-minded. Now, what does that mean? What made these Berean Jews more fair-minded or noble-minded? Well, they were open-minded. That's the idea here. These Jews were more open-minded. Unlike the closed-minded Jews in Thessalonica, which prevented them from fairly weighing the evidence of what Paul was proclaiming about Jesus. And they had the evidence where? It was in the scrolls right before them, in the scriptures. But they were so closed-minded, no, don't want to look at it. We are set in our ways, we're set in our traditions. Who are you, Paul? They were close-minded. These Jews are open-minded. And because these Berean Jews were more open-minded, they not only listened with open hearts to what Paul said about Jesus, but they checked it out in the Scriptures to see if it was really true or not. Finding that what Paul said about Jesus was indeed true. Oh. The power of the gospel comes alive again. Many of them believe, as well as many prominent Greek men and women. Now, let me just make a statement here about open-minded, closed-minded, especially in our day and age, our culture in which we live in. The open-minded are not those who believe anything but those who examine everything in light of God's Word. That's what the Scriptures are here for. It's it's our guide so that you can tell what is true and right or false, what is right and what is wrong. And unless we do this, Unless we search the Scriptures, unless we know the Scriptures, listen, here's what happens. We are lost in a sea of relativism in our day and age. Where no one knows what is true and what is false. And where your mind becomes confused and blinded and you are easily misled and even manipulated by our culture, what you see on Facebook, what you hear on the news even friends and family. This is why we must, as Christ followers, embrace the conviction that God's Word is our supreme authority in all manners of life. G.K. Chesterton once said, the purpose of an open mind is so that it might close in on something. And that is what we see happening here. The open mind of the Bereans led them, having checked it out in the Scriptures to see if it was true, then led them to close in on what? The truth of Jesus Christ. Their open minds were matched with their open hearts, which resulted in brand new hearts, born-again hearts in Jesus Christ. Woo! Converts for Christ. The gospel always does its work. So when God's word is proclaimed, we can expect converts for Jesus Christ, but we can also expect conflict because of Jesus Christ. Some jealous Jews, though, resisted the gospel, and they tried to suppress the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, if you go back to the city of Thessalonica, notice what happens after some Jews there and even some Greeks believed the gospel Paul was proclaiming. Notice what Luke writes in verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, look at this. Took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Now, this should be familiar to us. Do you recognize what's going on here? Do you recognize the tactic here in this verse? Because we are seeing this very same tactic play out across our country. When these close-minded Jews couldn't refute Paul's arguments from the scriptures, what did they resort to? They resorted to mob violence to accomplish their purposes. This was rent-a-mob justice at work. It's what's happening in our country today. Mob justice is always unpredictable, emotionally charged, and filled with all manner of prejudices expressed in violent outbursts. In fact, the exchange of ideas in modern society in which we now live has been called the dialogue of the deaf. And that's what we see here. With these Jews in Thessalonica, their minds are deaf to the truth of Jesus Christ, and as a result, they sought to suppress the truth of Jesus Christ. Why? Because when you are unwilling to listen to reason, dialogue on the basis of truth, then you end up resorting to mob violence to force people to either agree with you or to at least silence them. And that is the tactic they are using against Paul and Silas. It's what we are seeing play out today. But Paul would not be silenced when it came to Jesus Christ. And so notice how God works. His hand was fully in control, and just before the mob arrived, he sent Paul and Silas out of town. Luke writes in verses 6 through 10, look at it. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. Poor old Jason here. He got what they wanted to do to Paul crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And that word harbored is actually a rather beautiful word. It's our word for hospitality. And so Jason was hospitable to Paul and Silas. And as a result, he's now in on the persecution side of it. And so Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things, so that when they had taken security from Jason, in other words, uh, Belmont bond or bribery, and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Here's what you need to see. There's a cost. There's always a cost to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question is always, are we willing to pay the price? They charged Paul and Silas with, quote, turning the world upside down, an expression suggesting that they were guilty of radical social upheaval. Now, Paul probably would have argued that, in fact, no, they were turning the world right side up again, making it right, but yes, they were changing the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yes, Paul would have argued that there is, in fact, another king. Yes, Caesar is in rule over Rome, but there is a greater king than Caesar, and that is none other than who? Jesus Christ! Of course, the enemy of gospel truth is relentless. And so once again, here come the hounds of hell... This time chasing Paul all the way to Berea. And look what Luke says in verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached, proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there also 50 miles and stirred up the crowds once again. Once again, Paul has been driven from a city. Once again, the opposition to Jesus Christ is evident. And once again, the power of the gospel was manifested in bringing many people to saving faith in Jesus. Awesome! What an awesome display of God's power at work through His people. Now, there are many things to take away from all that we've seen in these two cities. But perhaps the greatest thing to take away with you this morning is this. The call to bridge the gap is one of conviction. We proclaim, yes indeed, another king. And that king is Jesus Christ. And when we do, it turns the world upside down. The question is are we prepared for that? Are we ready for that? The gospel of Jesus Christ, get this, is revolutionary. It is radical. Do you see Jesus Christ in those terms? Do you see how radical the message of the gospel really is? It says that our world is not right the the way it is, and that your life is not right the way it is because of our sin. And it can only be made right as we trust in a crucified but resurrected king, name Jesus. Folks, that message is world-changing. That message though is both persuasive and divisive. It's persuasive because it offers hope in Jesus Christ, but it's divisive because it disrupts and changes people's hearts. Oh that God would give us a renewed conviction in the power of the gospel and hence a renewed conviction to proclaim it. And when we do, that we will turn the world upside down. As John Stott writes, when Christianity really goes into action, it must cause a revolution both in the life of the individual and in the life of society. And C.T. Studd summarized his own ambitions with these words. This quote was even given at a conference I just came from. He says, I pray that when I die, all of hell will rejoice that I am no longer in the fight. Now that's a man of conviction in the power of the gospel to turn the world upside down. And so let us here at LifeBridge, let us aspire to live with such gospel conviction that we are accused of turning the world upside down. Let us here as individuals... Live with such gospel conviction that all of hell will rejoice when we are no longer in this fight. Are you ready to answer God's call to go beyond borders with the gospel of Jesus Christ? This call requires conviction, and when the word is proclaimed, then the world is changed. Now you'll notice there at the bottom of your notes, some suggestions, tips, whatever you want to call them, on ways to embolden your conviction, your gospel conviction. Let me encourage you to take those to heart. And the first one being, know God's Word. The reason we have a culture of Christians in America, especially with so little anemic conviction, is because so many people don't know the Word of God. There is something you want to embolden your conviction, read the Word of God. It's living, it's powerful. And then engage people in your world in gospel conversations without worrying about the results because God's the one that brings the results. The gospel is sufficient to stand on its own. The question is, are we willing to engage people with it? And then last, attend the World Outreach Celebration. Because I'm telling you what, when you come and you listen to the stories of our missionaries, you walk away and you leave with conviction about the gospel and the mission that we are on. Your conviction is strengthened, it is emboldened having attended the World Outreach Celebration. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, and we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the example of Paul and Silas here. We thank you for their commitment, their conviction to you in the mission. That regardless of their circumstances, they kept enduring, persevering, and proclaiming the power of the gospel. Lord, let us take it to heart. Let us see ourselves in the story. Let us apply it. Let us be moved by it. May you do a work that only you can now by your spirit. Praise team's going to sing a chorus as they do. Let me encourage you, go to the Lord in prayer. Renew your commitment, your conviction. Ask Him to do something in your heart. Give your life to Him.